Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. We are super excited to announce the new Ops Analytica contactless auditing suite. Within the Ops Analytica platform, your auditor can be safe at home, protecting their health and also protecting the health of your restaurant team. They can be working uh, with your general manager to collaboratively audit the restaurant. They'll be talking, they'll be chatting, they'll be taking photos, they'll be coaching, and they will be creating action plan tasks for that general manager, and they will be doing it remotely. But because they are doing it remotely, you will be able to increase the audit cadence for your restaurants, and your auditors will be able to do more audits per week because they will not be wasting time and money behind the windshield. So if you want to learn more about contactless auditing and how it can transform your business and can save you money, please go to opsanalytica.com and check out contactless auditing. Hey there, Order Up Show podcast listeners. This is uh, Tommy, your host today, and I am very excited to welcome uh, David Leonardo, CEO of Chillin' Ice Cream and Frozen Yogurt to the show. Welcome, David. How are you today? Pretty good, Tommy. Thanks for having me on. Oh man, I'm so excited to, to talk to you and learn more about chilling. Um, so David, just so you know, this is a very complex show with a lot of rules. Now, we basically just ask the same five questions to every guest, um, and then we just have a nice conversation and hang out. So uh, with that being said, let's just jump into it. The easier, the better. I like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, if I had to do this very complicated show, I'd have to be sitting here cutting and editing this thing for 20 hours. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> so uh, first question of the five is explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from your first job in the industry. Yeah. Um, so what I do today is I lead a family run uh, business down here in South Florida with eight locations uh, in the nitrogen ice cream space. Uh, it was one of the early pioneers in nitrogen ice cream back in 2012. Uh, we've grown the brand to eight locations. And uh, about two years ago, the family decided that they wanted to franchise this concept after getting, um, just, getting just getting a lot of, lot of people interested in the brand. And they thought franchising would be the best route to really try to expand this across the country. And so that's how I was introduced to the brand. Uh, at the time, I was actually um, just leaving or just kind of walking away from another opportunity where I was uh, in franchising, heading up a franchise division uh, for a large pet retailer. Um, so basically for the past 20 years, I've been in franchising, growing brands, um, talking to private equity groups, um, really assisting franchisees, increasing their size of their portfolios and potentially also selling distressed assets to private equity groups that are looking to kind of uh, get in at a cheap price and then make a good return on it. Um, so I, I started my franchising career with a company called Burger King down here in Florida, which I'm sure you and your listeners are very aware of. Um, at the time, they were they were going through somewhat of a of a reorg and um, looking to sell a lot of a lot of their assets. And that's when I joined the company and soon found myself in the franchising department and then after that um worked myself into a director level position over at arby's that was growing pretty fast uh, arby's then purchased wendy's and i i ended up doing some international work for wendy's for a period of time really all of this in the business development franchise development realm um and then really after that after i've really kind of you know um gotten a huge amount of experience working with multinational corporations. I thought that I would be best suited if I can take that experience and kind of, uh, you know, really parlay that into some more regional brands. So I had a chance to work with some smaller regional brands and uh, really help develop the entire real estate division, um, franchising departments, and, and kind of help them grow through franchising. So uh, not necessarily your typical entrepreneur, to be honest with you, your restaurant entrepreneur, um, in the sense that I did not start my career as a busboy or as a, you know, working in the back um, kitchen. Although I will tell you that I come from a family uh, of restaurateurs. So my my mom opened up one of the first um, restaurants in in my hometown for that focused in Latin food, and so we definitely nice. got uh, we definitely had to work there uh, quite a bit. 
Um, <laughs> so I got a good appreciation for what it takes to work in a restaurant. My uncle worked, uh, had a restaurant in New Jersey. So uh, while living in New Jersey one summer, I had to actually spend the entire summer in the back there um, cleaning dishes and, and kind of making some college money. But, um, but other than that, I, I was fortunate enough to get a, a job in investment banking out of college uh, in New York City um, and, uh, and kind of really, really developed my finance skills uh, there. So I was kind of a little bit of a different background or different pathway to get into franchising and get into restaurants. But I've been in the restaurant business for more than 20 years. And, and I like to think that I grew up in the restaurant business, um, you know, with my family background. Yeah, you're the first person I've ever met who had an investment banking and finance career and said, I should get into restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, but sometimes the opportunity finds you, right? Like, like it's, so what's hilarious is I came down after investment banking to Miami to go work at a startup. You know, if you remember the late 90s, you know, everybody oh, yeah. was kind of crazy with the startups and, and dot coms and stuff. And some of my buddies were starting one. And I said, you know what? Um, how about I forego business school and come down to Miami uh, and really have a great time starting, uh, like helping this company get off the ground. And so we did a great job at raising, you know, more than $10 million in a short period of time and spending it in half that time um, and uh, going out of business, <laughs> going out of business, had a great time during that process. And then, you know, literally fell in love with Miami. And that's when, you know, Burger King came around and said, hey, we're, we're looking for some finance experts to help us sell some restaurants. And, and that's literally how I got into the restaurant industry initially. Absolutely. Yeah, we're very familiar with RBI. Um, yeah, totally cool. So a uh, couple of questions. What kind of uh, what kind of Latin food uh, was your mom selling in her restaurant? So my my um, my family's from the Caribbean, the Dominican Republic, more specifically. So we uh, we were from. Uh, I grew up in a small town north of Boston called Haverhill, Massachusetts, and so uh, my mom was able to open up a restaurant right there on Washington Street. And oh, nice. uh, yeah, it was great. Great food, great food, homemade. You know, I think um, for a very fast-growing Latin community it was really uh, a great way for them to kind of escape and not have to cook at home and, and get a great meal. Nice. My grandfather, uh, so I am Puerto Rican and Greek. So I okay. used to have a joke in my comedy act, which was, you know, that I was like conceived in a kitchen uh, because, you know, the Greeks and the Puerto Ricans, that's all they do is restaurants. Absolutely. And, uh, but my grandfather had a Puerto Rican restaurant on Wall Street in New York called El Patio. And actually, my mom got the menu frame. So it's, it's in my office and I can see. Uh, the, and it was in the 60s and the 70s. So, like, if you look at, like, the cocktail prices, they're like a buck 25, you know, for like a martini. I yeah. mean, it was awesome. But uh, yeah, so we have that. And I don't know if you grew up in this same environment, but my family, because of their restaurant experience, were absolutely adamant that they did not want me to be in the restaurant business. They're like, this is brutal work. The last thing you want to do is this. You go to college, you go do whatever you want. I mean, granted, I ended up working 100 hours a week in investment banking, which is not, you know, not a cakewalk either. But uh, my family... You know, it was more out of a necessity, you know, and, and what they knew best. And they were just great cooks. So, you know, like many immigrants, you know, they kind of do what they know how uh, in order to get ahead. Right. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Like so my so here, here's my like story. My grandfather came to the U.S. at 12 from Crete in Greece. And he, he settled in North Carolina. There was a big Greek community where he was. He built several businesses and lost them all because he had like a middle school education, but he knew how to build a business. And he, and he always had, you know, towards the end there, he always just ran restaurants. So he had diners and restaurants, you know, the typical Greek diner. My other grandfather, he did all kinds of different work around the world and ended up having a restaurant as well. My parents, my dad was a rocket scientist and my mom worked for Lockheed. There you go. <laughs> they did not want me in the restaurant business. My dad was like, are you kidding me? Do you want to be in the restaurant business? Because he remembered his dad struggling in that diner, you know, like when he was a kid. And so he was like, do not do it. But then I ended up going to, uh, I went to military college for two years. And then I went to ho hotel restaurant school at the University of Denver. That's how I got to Colorado. Got and it. so I got my HR degree there and I really wanted to be a chef like my dream at the time was go to the Cordon Bleu get the grand diploma and then open and run my own restaurants 
But then, then you know, as things happened, I went into country club management, and then I started doing stand-up comedy for 12 years. So then I just worked in restaurants during that period of time, and then I got an MBA, and then I went to corporate restaurants for a little bit at Quiznos, um, yeah. which is interesting. You were selling franchises, and I was helping desperate franchises back when Quiznos started to implode. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we probably some of the same people, um, you know, at Quiznos. I know some of the people who went over there at Quiznos, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting industry to be in, and I think, you know, I live in Miami now, and I, I I have to I have to almost guess that it's probably one of the sexiest industry that people try to get into without knowing a single thing about it, and because oh, yeah. it just seems like you know so many restaurants that you can just tell the amount of money being spent to open them. Um, and the operations are just not efficient. So if you're not someone in the business of counting pennies um, and, and understanding where, you know, where each penny and nickel goes, you're probably not suited for, for the restaurant business unless, of course, you have a huge, expansive uh, wine menu that can make up for whatever is going wrong in the kitchen. <laughs> well, it's so true. I have a blog that, like, the restaurant business is like a penny, nickel, and dime business. Like, it's not... This isn't, this isn't like big money. And like, so it's funny. One of my good buddies out here, he's, he's in real estate. Right. And so they own They, they buy these like, you know, dilapidated block and then they go and, and they rehab it and make it in this beautiful, like bar restaurant donut, you know, areas like that. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I got this guy and he's, he's spending a million dollars building out this restaurant and this is pre COVID. Right. And, and it's like, he's spending a million bucks. And then he's like, but the thing is, I go, well, I just told him he's going to run out of money very quickly. And then you're going to be stuck with him. And he's like, yeah, I know. And then I'm going to have to cut his rent because it'll take me 18 months to fill it back up. And, and so it's like, you know, these guys go out and they spend a million dollars big in this beautiful restaurant. Well, unless you're charging $250, like yeah. your average check's $250, you are yeah. not going to make it. And if your average check is $250, you are not going to be full. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not, I don't know. You would think you would think with how many times that happens that people would know, but it just it's uh, I don't know. There must be a racket somewhere. Somebody's like, you know, some somebody's making money somehow, but there just seems like it happens time and time again. Um, so I, I always try to implore people. Um, and obviously, as part of my my process growing this company and, and being able to kind of interview whoever wants to grow within the franchise, those are questions I want to know. I, I want to know how they're relationship with money is, what their relationship with this business is going to be, you know, a lot of questions that can give me some insight in terms of, you know, how they would be as an operator. Because um, ultimately, you know, as a brand, you know, especially in the franchising space, you're trying to bring on people who are going to represent your brand. You know, no, no one's yeah. going to distinguish in the future. Wow, that's a bad chilling store. But the other chilling store, like, you know, is great. The franchisee and the other store is great. They're just going to say chilling. It's a bad experience and it's chilling and you give a, you give the brand a bad name. So I think sometimes the best you can do, uh, the best thing you can do as an early stage brand is to make sure you know exactly who's coming in and who's going to be representing your brand as they uh, venture out to open up some stores for you across the country. Absolutely. Like nobody discerns that like, it's so funny. Like, so like, is it, this is a roundabout thing, but so Seattle said, okay, we're not going to allow franchise restaurants in like the downtown area. Right. So they had that like stupid law that they did a couple of years ago, but then they were like, well, subway, well, the guy owns a subway, right? Okay. Well, that's not subway corporate. That's like a local right. resident of Seattle who owns that subway. So that's a dumb thing. Like just how that kind of stuff works. But at the same time, when you go into subway, you don't go, well, you know, Bob and Sally's Subway really sucks. You go, no, Subway sucks. Okay. Like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like you, there, it, when, you, when you're growing a brand, you know, it, it's the blessing. It, you know, it's the blessing and the curse of the franchise model is I can grow quickly because I don't have to be as capitalized because other people will be investing this capital and growing my business. But at the same time, you know, you also take on that risk that of, people not necessarily doing what they need to be doing. You know what I mean? For yeah, the brand. I mean, look, and, and you you obviously know, uh, you know, you know firsthand about that experience, right? I mean, with your experience with Kiznos and stuff, it's just, I think what happens in many brands out there is they fall in love with the income that's being generated by the franchise fees, um, you know, initially, or being able to tell investors, hey, we have 100 stores in the pipeline, 200 stores in the pipeline. 
I think you know the smart investors have caught on to that that game. Um, yeah. But still, you still see brands doing that here and there. I rather I rather grow at a slower pace and make sure that my franchisees are financially stable because I always tell this story. You know, there was a time at Burger King where many years ago you would walk into a DMA. DMA let's say Dallas, for instance, yeah. and you'd have, you know, 50 plus stores with 40 plus franchisees. You know, there was a time where a franchisee owned one store and that was it. You know, we've now kind of grown to the point where, you know, franchising in general has become such an attractive investment that it's really caught the attention of a lot of big investment groups. So even private equity groups have become franchisees, not just owners of franchisors. Um, and so, you know, for a franchisor, however, it's much easier to manage a market, a system when you have fewer franchisees with a lot more stores. Imagine me coming to your market and yeah. saying, hey, Tommy, you're 10 stores in this market. Let's talk about your marketing strategy. Let's talk about your development strategy. Let's talk about your operation scores, as opposed to me walking into your market and being like, you know, all 10 franchisees have to come over. And, you know, it's, it just becomes a little more challenging. Well, and I mean, I can tell you, uh, we could spend the next five hours talking about everything that was crazy at Quiznos. So like when I, when I joined Quiznos, I had no idea about Quiznos. I, like, there was one down the street from my apartment, the original one. I used to live in Capitol Hill, Denver. That was it. And I went in there and I had, they had just crested 5,000 and, and then they were starting to come back down. And, but then I, I didn't know what was going on. And then I got the job franchise assistance manager. So then I'm, man, I'm the guy you call when you're about to go to business. Now, Nobody ever called me proactively six months out said, hey, I see my sales are kind of getting yeah. soft. What should I do? I always get the phone call of, hey, my landlord's about to kick me out. If you want to keep this quiz, now send me three grand to pay my rent, and, <laughs> you know, which I could obviously never do. But right. like they would tell stories at Quiznos about how like, you know, they would go up to uh, Keystone Resort, you know, and they get the conference room and they bring all the development people in. And Quiznos was a very uh, like Subway and a lot of other chains a very unsophisticated operator, a mom yeah. and pop. They were basically buying a job, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. whatever it was, but they would go in and, and, you know, they would come up with, they'd bring an armored car up with cash and they would be in that meeting and they'd be handing out $10,000 stacks of bonuses for people selling these restaurants and whatnot. And, you know, and it was like this whole crazy world that that all happened before I got there, but you know, you're right. So they were just going out and they were just growing at all costs. But then, but that actually ended up destroying the brand because none of those guys were capitalized. None of those guys, they sunk every penny into these Quiznos and they were, you know, and so even the slightest disruption in business, they were out. You know what I mean? Like someone did yeah, road construction in front of the strip center. They were done. Yeah. I, and unfortunately, I it just, they don't have the, they don't have kind of that, that ability to kind of absorb any incremental costs, right? Their PL is structured yeah. as such that, you know, once that uh, early two years come in and the, or the first five years, and then that first increase, you know, in rent comes in or, you know, th they're just not set up for that. Or God forbid you have a 5% decline in sales, you know? And so th those are some of the challenges that franchisors have, but you know, a lot of them have taken on the strategy of growing out of your problems, you know, um, and look, I, I've, I've seen a lot of mistakes made. I, I, and, and so given the opportunity to kind of join a company that's just starting and, I, and having the chance to build it from the ground up, I've been able to kind of implement changes that would have been nearly impossible in some of the big multinational brands I was a part of, because you, you know how, it's, how it is, right? It's like, yeah. I always like to tell people it's like turning a it's like turning a freight liner you know around in a bathtub, right? It's just impossible yeah. to get something changed um, in a large organization like that. Um, so yeah, that's it's interesting, very interesting. Well, yeah, and I mean too, like you know, you can always see the franchisees that have put growth over long term growth, like just in the world, and and you know how you can tell it's the ones that have the strictest capital requirements because when you say hey look i want a franchisee who owns at least one other brand has at least a million liquid right and it's going to buy a market like i'm selling south denver i'm selling south miami or tampa and we're going to put together a development plan of five units in you know three years which is a reasonable pace to open i think one every six to eight months you know like that that franchise or 
will grow slower because there's less of those guys out there. There just simply are less of those guys that are sitting around with a million in cash that are going to run great restaurants. But those guys will be around when they do find those guys, they'll be here five or 10 years from now. You know what I mean? A lot of these organizations, these big franchise or fan, like they're just family groups. A lot of them times, you know, these guys started up with a couple pizza huts. I mean, I got two guys, I got like 300 plus pizza huts on our platform and it's two guys, it's two families that just, you know, have that many locations, but like they'll be here and they can withstand all that stuff. But when you go for that mom and pop that they're buying their job, like you said, you know, somebody gets sick or also, you know, I mean, any, that they're just basically a mom and pop that just happened to buy a brand, you yeah. know, it's just, yeah, it's look, and, 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 and yet you, you are absolutely right. Look, the, the, if I were to kind of, you know, list out kind of the descriptions or the characteristics of an ideal franchisee, it would definitely be right. That, that million plus net worth and well-capitalized, ideally coming yeah. from uh, ideally looking at us to expand their existing portfolio, right. Of other brands, yeah. you know, so that they already have the infrastructure in place and obviously they can leverage that GNA, you know, and, and make more profitability and open more stores. And, and that's really yeah. the ideal scenario. The challenge in many cases is how do you convince someone who's who's been a yeah. part of many different brands that have been around 10, 15 years, have multiple locations that you as a as a, you know, brand new franchise concept, although we've been around for eight years, is worth the investment. And so that is sure. that is part of what I do. And I spend a lot of my time doing trying to convince some of these guys that, look, this we are a different model. We do have kind of a, a unique, you know, um, a unique story and a unique way to make money. We have an attractive EBITDA, you know, number. All of those metrics, right? That that I know franchise franchisees are looking for. It's trying to get in front of those individuals and convince them yeah. that we're worth that investment. In the meantime, you know, I have to say that while my preference is definitely not mom and pop. There are yeah. some caveats where I would look at someone who is willing to do that. And what I try to tell them is I don't want anyone quitting their job. If you're looking at this as an investment where you're going to quit your job and do this, then then we're not for you. But if you're looking at this as a side investment for your children, for them to get on ahead and you're looking to hire someone and we're looking to get to three stores and you're willing to commit to three stores, then yes, we can get there. We can get there. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I completely agree with you. Like that's, yeah. that's a fair, that's a good way to look at it. Right. Because if you, yeah. And I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. Um, you know, it's funny too, is that you and I are, are kind of in the same job, which is I'm selling, you know, restaurant operations management software and you're selling franchisees, but we're both looking for the same guy. And I'm sure you've also realized too, that those big multi-unit franchise operators, they are hard to find. There's not a good, you just can't go find them on data.com. Like you can go find, you know, the HR head of HR for every major company in the world. Like those guys are hiding and they are good at hiding. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? They're, they're very good at hiding. And, and I'll tell you this, look, there's, there's, listen, in the world of multi-unit operators, there's also great ones. And there's ones that I probably would have to say no to because, yeah. you know, I'm going to be that small fish in their big pond, right? And so the question is, yeah. how much attention am I going to get? Is my brand going to get? And also, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be careful about not aligning myself with people who just want to look at my brand and say, you know what, we really like everything you've done. Now let me change the entire business model to my yeah. liking. You know, um, sure. I want to get out of a situation where I find myself, you know, where the tail's wagging the dog. And so I just... Um, I want to be very careful, regardless of of the portfolio they bring to the table. You still have to do your homework, right? You have you want to understand Absolutely. what kind of franchisee they are, what kind of management styles that they have, what kind of you know, um, what kind of development commitments are already in place with some of their other brands, right? Because if they're completely sure. overcommitted, or if they're behind on their development schedule, then what does that say for you know the development schedule that ideally they would be executing with me? So yeah, look, I, I got to be honest with you. So I. I don't, I spend time looking for them and talking to them, but if I spent most of my time doing that, I probably wouldn't get anywhere. Um, so I know that for me to get to the, to the point where I'm on their radar, I'm going to probably need to grow a little bit more. And that's going to be with some very, very solid operators that um, are in that tier. I just told you that 
are not mom and pop where they're going to be, you know, paying their mortgage, supporting their family from the cash flow, but they do have enough of a net worth and they hit that million dollar mark where they're interested in opening two or three stores and running it as a business. And, and I think yeah. the more of those singles and doubles that I can hit, the, the faster I can get on the radar of some of the bigger players out there. Absolutely. I mean, uh, sales solves all issues. And, uh, when it comes to that and you know what, as you get to that 30, 40, 50 unit block, a lot of private equity investment and a lot of people are going to start seeing you and they're going to, you know what I mean? And then they'll help and it'll all just start growing from there. And you know, what's interesting though, and, and this is an opportunity that I think that actually Steak and Shake was doing, but they were doing it just as like, yeah, they're just like bucketing water out of the boat. Right. But like, <laughs> but, um, is I think there's a real opportunity in the franchising space, and this is hypothetical because uh, I don't think anyone's doing it, to find the the operator who doesn't have the credit to buy a franchise, but to like stake them, you know, sort of like P.F. Chang's, they do an operating partner because they realize that having a stable GM in these big restaurants that they were funding and building out for the first five years made all the difference and the success. So they would have an operating partner who would maybe drop in 50, 25, 50 grand, whatever, but then they basically had a GM job for the next five years and they made a fortune. But I think there's a, there's also a play in franchising of, hey, you've been a, an area manager for five, like 20 whatever stores in this area. You know how to run restaurants, you know how to train. Let me bring you in and give you this business and you're going to become an owner operator and over time you will buy me out. But then you also retain, you know, so it's sort of like you're developing it yourself, but then you've got the guy in place and maybe, yeah. you know, there's probably a model yeah. in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, and, and uh, believe it or not, some of the larger brands have played with that uh, historically. I, sure. I know I was a part of uh, Burger King when they were um, working on a program to kind of reward some of their longer standing um, operators. Um, that have been part of the system for a very long time, working in the company stores and working on ways to give them, you know, give them a company store and have them work through some of that loan and give them a discounted price on that store. So there's that's historically yeah. tested. Um, you know, the scalability of that model definitely is 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 challenging in many ways because you know, like you know, finding great operators is not easy. Um, and so that you know that. Uh, that can be challenging, but definitely that's an interesting concept to, to kind of look at. I mean, the, the way we're looking at it is, you know, we're going down more of a traditional road of, of just saying, look, we we think we have a great mousetrap. We think we've really figured out how to make custom ice cream right there on the spot in under two minutes, you know, that yeah. gives you fresh farm to table product. Um, so the quality is good, the value is good, but more importantly, the consistency is good. And so one of the reasons I decided to join this company is because of the technology focus that it has. And so if you can imagine going into an ice cream shop, typically you'd have all these buckets, you know, uh, in there in the freezer and you're yeah. scooping them up. What we have is we literally have um, a, a cream dispenser that the person types in the order, you put a bowl under the cream dispenser, it dispenses exactly the right amount of cream according to your order. Nice you add the flavor and then you put it under the mixer and you add, you enter the order in again and automatically the mixer is not only spinning, but it's also dispensing exactly the right amount of liquid nitrogen so that it comes out in the same level of consistency every single time. So whenever you're thinking about franchising, the first thing that should come to mind is how do I make sure that this product can be duplicated hundreds of times, not only in this location, but in hundreds of locations across the country, across the globe. And automation and technology gets you there, right? So if you go into McDonald's, Burger King, any of these brands, automation gets you there. And so the fact that we've been able to do that um, with proprietary software and kind of the, all these algorithms that we built into the system and have a high school employee, you know, type in some buttons and uh, able to serve and work four machines at once to serve four or five um, customers, I think that to me is one of the big competitive advantages we have uh, over the competition. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I didn't realize you guys were that high tech. So that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, no, we, we end up spending more time talking about technology at our company than, uh, than um, you know, than actual ice cream. 
I'll give you another example, and I'm sure a lot of the restaurateurs listening to this will probably uh, relate to this because it's definitely something I see every time I go out to eat. We live in a world now with all this delivery. I mean, everybody's doing delivery. You walk into a restaurant, you see four or five tablets sitting there, you know, with, you know, Uber Eats and Postmates and Grubhub and DoorDash and everything like that. We are no different. You know, we, we've been able to perfect the model where we actually add more liquid nitrogen to the product um, so that it literally turns into an, a block, you know, and then we put it in a paper bag, the delivery guy takes it, and in 10, 15 minutes, it's still good. And by the time it gets to your house, it's as if somebody was handing it to you over the counter. The problem with delivery in the restaurant business today is that from an operational standpoint, it is a complete nightmare to deal with all of these different programs. Like it's just a yeah. nightmare dealing with all these different. And so what we did early on is we said, look, if we're going to have any semblance of sanity in our stores, especially with our employees and continuing the throughput that we're used to, we're going to need some level of an integrator. So we basically brought in a technology platform that integrates all of our delivery orders into one tablet and basically feeds it right into our to our POS system. So no nice. longer do we have to kind of deal with all of that stuff. I mean, it's just it is amazing what that's done to us um, because we no longer have to turn off the tablets. What typically happens is when the tablets get really busy with delivery orders, you sometimes just have to turn it off. I mean, our employees were turning it off. We're going crazy because we're losing money. And then they're telling us, look, we, we just can't keep up with the demand. And so now potentially doing this and a couple other technological advancements, advancements, we're now keeping up with the demand that that we're having. So that, that's just some little insight there from the technology standpoint that I'm sure a lot of your restaurateurs are either looking at or considering. And for those who haven't done it, I really think it's worth it. Oh, you know, one of our big clients, I think, had, did that too because it was driving them nuts. The other thing that you're seeing a lot of too, when, because the fact that you guys, you're probably one of the few people who can deliver ice cream, right? Like, I mean... I have never heard of like I've never seen it at like Baskin Robbins or any of these other ice cream shops, you know, wherever. So that's a that's a huge strategic advantage. One number one, but you know, like if you look at Jimmy John's, like uh, I think Jimmy John's better than any other like quick service chain other than the pizza guys, really epitomize what a delivery business should look like. And you know, they run double lines. They have a delivery line and a front line. And so if you're going to be a big delivery store. Or, you know, you should obviously, as you expand out, offer that option to have that second line with another batch of machines uh, because, you know, delivery can be huge in that case, you know, but then it also doesn't affect the ability to service the customers in the store as well. Yeah, yeah. But, no, uh, you're absolutely right. We're, we're uniquely positioned because we control the amount of nitrogen, right, that goes into each bowl. Yeah. So we'll make the regular ice cream. We'll, we'll put it in the cup. And we'll literally dip that entire cup into a container full of liquid nitrogen. Literally, the minute you bring it up, it's completely solid. You throw it in the bag, it's good to go. You can't do that if you're another ice cream shop. So you're you're absolutely right about yeah. that. Um, you know, so that's that's definitely a competitive advantage that that we have in, in that realm. Um, that's yeah, sweet. Well, and you had said something earlier that I didn't tag on, but you were like, "Well, how do you grow? You know, a business? You you know it." A chain, a brand is supposed to be consistent, right? Like that's why you buy, you know, Coke. That's why you can get the same Big Mac anywhere in the world, whatever it is. So the thing is, the other thing that how do you grow a business? Because I was literally having this conversation yesterday is it's all about systems. So you that's have right. the ice cream system down, right? Yep. You have the technology for make the delivery more easy to manage. You have that system down, but you cannot scale a business without systems like and it's not just it's not just like in your case it's the ice cream and now it's the delivery it's the same pos uh you know it's going to be at some point it's going to be about having what footprint what does the store look like you know how do you open it how do you close it you know audit it all those things I, I think having you're those absolutely systems. right you're absolutely right and look this goes for anyone who wants to grow from one unit to two units to three units, regardless of whether you want to be a franchisor or not, you need to have systems in yeah. place. If you find yourself being overwhelmed and staying up till three o'clock in the morning every night, looking over information, you're probably not set to grow, right? I mean, you need to dedicate time. I always try to tell people, if you can't dedicate time each week to think strategically, 
to think about how to grow the business, to think about how to improve the business, and you're just in the weeds the entire week, you're not ready to grow. Like you're not, you know, you have to be in a position. And also I'll tell you something else. Empowering people will dictate more about your ability to grow than anything else, right? Your ability to go from one unit to two units to three units, you know, can, you know, is greatly impacted by how much are you willing to empower others? I've seen micromanagers manage two, three units, but you'll never get to five, seven, 10, 15 units, you know, micromanaging a business that way. It's just, it'll be a strain on your employees. They won't be happy. It'll be a strain on your business. And ultimately you won't have the time to dedicate to strategically think about what's going right, what's going wrong and how to grow the business. And so we, we, what we do here is we're trying to implement systems from beginning to end, everything from your real estate to your construction to how you operate, you know, we're trying to implement systems to make it easy for the operator. You know, be it your payroll provider, be it your, you know, your your labeling, you know, for your your orders. I mean, anything that could help alleviate some sort of uh, stress on labor or alleviate some of the demands on a franchisee. I think that's something that could be really well received and provide a high ROI. Well, I 100% agree with you. And but I would even go a step further than what you said in that if you are staying up till two or three in the morning, and not only are you not going to grow, you don't really have a business, because a business is an entity that survives when you're gone. It's a it's a it's an entity that can keep going when you're on vacation, when you get sick, when you right. want to go visit colleges with your kid, whatever it is like. And so if you're a one person show and you right. have no backup whatsoever and no systems, and the minute you're not there yelling at people, then the whole thing falls apart. You don't have a business. You just have uh, a cult of personality that requires you to be there screaming at people to get anything done. So not only are you not going to grow, but when you have that inevitable thing, where you know you get sick or whatever it is, you got COVID. Who knows? You know, next thing you know, the whole thing falls apart. So, yeah, Tommy, um, that's a good, that's a good point. A very good point. So you know, we have just kind of blown through all the questions, but I, we've actually answered a bunch of them too as we were just chatting. So hey, uh, but here, so you took us to the first one. The second one, what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? So why don't you hit that one real fast? Look, I think it's, um, you know, we spent the last uh, year and a half building systems and infrastructure in place so that we can scale this business through franchising. And so now, you know, what we what we're doing now is really going out and trying to uh, solicit, entertain and um, and bring in strong operators who say who can say, wow, we'd love to bring chill into our market. We love the system that you have. We love the profitability and the metrics that you have on your P&L. And we think that we're, you know, we could beat the competition. And so I'm spending a lot of my time now, now that I feel that the systems are at a good place, really focused on trying to bring in investors that can help us grow the brand. Nice. So, uh, by the way, I'll put in the, um, I will put in the show notes for everybody. If you're listening to this and you're like, holy hell, I want to be a part of this organization. I will have a link to the Chillin' website uh, uh, when the show's posted. So you can just click on it and they have a franchising tab on their website. Um, okay, so I'm going to move on to the third question. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Um, I mean, listen, right now, it's it's COVID, right? I mean, COVID and and uh, and luckily for us, we've been able to adapt in the world of COVID. And and again, going back to the example of having a small organization, you know, we were able to do some immediate pivots by um, by you know rolling out order online, pick up at store within a week of COVID. We were able to close all of our in-store dining and um, and bring the register to the front of the store in most of our all of our stores really. Um, and keeping our employees safe, right? Um, so that so in terms of COVID, it's really when do we get back to some level of normalcy um, where we can have people sitting down inside our stores again? Um, the good news on this is that even in a world of COVID last year, our sales ended up being positive over 2019. And again, um, to give you a little bit of color around that, we were doing about 10% delivery 
um, before COVID, we got up as high as 70% delivery. Uh, and now we're hovering somewhere around 25%. If it wasn't for that ability to bring on all the other delivery partners and to you know change our operations so that we can execute that and, and make sure the quality isn't jeopardized, uh, you know I don't know if we'd be in a positive territory for last year. So we were we were very happy with the way that that uh, turned out. So I, I would say COVID keeps me up at night, and also also going back to my project is bringing in the best franchisees I can. I, look. Right now, because we don't have any franchise stores, I don't have someone for an investor to call and say, how do you like being a franchisee? I don't have that validation, right? So the first set of franchisees that I have that open are going to be the future validators. And that's why it keeps me up at night to think about who are they? How strong do they need to be? You know, um, what markets should I allow to sell? Which one should I wait and, and grow later on? So those are the things that keep me up at night. Oh, yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, it's always hardest to get the first, right? But at least, but here's where I'll say you have a huge advantage, right? Because most franchisees, or fr excuse me, most franchisors own very few of their own restaurants. And, um, right. and right. so what ends up happening is, and this was totally at Quiznos, uh, we would make some stupid change because we didn't have any test restaurants to really like, we couldn't like, if you're a franchisor, what you should do is you should make a change to operations, whatever you're going to do, whatever that initiative is, is you're in your restaurants for six months and see how it actually works before you just roll it out to the group. And then, you know, because that's why most franchisees hate franchisors, because they feel like the franchisor is imposing all of these additional costs and headaches on their business. And, and yet they don't feel like they're well thought out or, you know they just that's where that animosity comes into play right and so um the fact that you own eight restaurants is uh you know the fact that you own eight restaurants i think is a huge benefit because you know you can at least we, we test all this in our own stores first and it will be hard to get that first you're gonna have to have somebody who really believes in you and wants to take the leap but once you get them boom you'll be off to the races yeah, and I mean, I'll give you an example to that. We um we rolled out alternative bases, um so you can make your ice cream out of regular you know cream, which is ice cream, and you can make it out of yogurt, you can make it out of tart. But we also added this past year um, during COVID, we literally added oat milk, um, almond milk, and coconut milk um, to the oh, bases. Nice. So now you can literally make you know if you're if you're vegan, if you're gluten free, or whatever your dietary restrictions, you can make it out of that. And we, I had investors asking me, well, you know, how do you know that's going to be successful? How do you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, isn't the, isn't the waste going to be higher and this and that? I'm like, well, how about you come and visit and we'll share with you our numbers. We'll literally share with you what we're yeah. doing. I mean, it's, you know, we're, that's the great thing about, you're right, owning stores. Not only does my item 19, where, where a franchisor has a chance to show all of their financial data that they care to share with a franchise, a potential franchisee, that's where he puts that information in. I decided, hey, let's put our entire PL in there. I, so, you know, I got it all in there across the average stores, the median stores, the minimum stores, and the maximum stores. And what that has done, Tommy, to your point, is it literally allows me to have so much of a more um, just beneficial and fruitful and engaging conversation with someone who understands numbers as opposed to some of these brands that are like, look, this is our sales and we can't share with you anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, people play all those stupid game dude. Like they take the PNL the Manhattan store, and they like, here's the here's the chain. It's doing eight hundred thousand, you know, per unit or whatever, ten million. Right. All of a sudden, well, in Duke, Iowa, it's doing two thousand, and that guy's one essence. So yeah, it's cool that you're going to show everything. This guy, you know, the what I've seen is the franchise organizations that West are the ones that really are focused on since the brand, but they the franchise mind, right? The franchisee success is my success. And uh, that wasn't the case with Quiznos. And, you know, that's why it went from over 5,000 to less than three, probably at this point. Um, so, okay, here, going on to question number four. What is one thing you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Wow. Um, good question. One thing I thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't. Um, and and are you talking just restaurant in general or, or franchising or, or a little bit of both? I don't you know. It's, 
whatever you want, man. Cool with me. Yeah, you know, I have to be honest with you. I thought that um, I thought that they would. I thought the industry in, in general, and I would say more. I'm going to talk about landlords um, because landlords have had a lot of power over the last 12 months, uh, and there's yeah. been a lot of vacancies that have been thrown at the market. I thought they'd be more embraceive of creative solutions on their leases, um, given everything that the restaurant industry has gone through. Don't get me wrong. I think that there are some um, individual landlords that are doing what it takes to kind of, you know, keep their co-tenancy, their tenancy up. And um, but I think overall, uh, at least the conversations we've had with some national landlords and, and developers, I have felt that. Um, not many of them are willing to be creative enough in light of the situation. Uh, so I thought that by this time around, you would have seen a bigger drop in lease rates. So if you ask me, I would have thought there would have been an even a bigger drop in lease rates uh, at this point than we've seen. I would tell you four months into the pandemic, we were still negotiating some leases with landlords and they were basically balking at us. They were giving us pre-pandemic numbers. They were thought that this was gonna be over in another month or two. And um, they only started coming around literally towards the end of the year, 2020. Um, and then even then, it's only with the notion that they're convinced, you know, by the middle of 2021, this is going to be over. So, uh, listen, I don't want to I don't want to throw all landlords in the middle, but I'm sure some restaurateurs out there are going to probably uh, agree with me. Um, but there are some mom and pop landlords and developers out there that have done everything, you know, that, that have been very good with their with their tenants. Yeah. That's such a tough one, right? Because, you know, I, yeah, I, I go back and forth on the real estate because in one respect, it's like, well, it's one thing, you know, if I own the strip center outright, I don't have a lease on it. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm not mortgaged to my hilt. Then I can afford to work with people. And you, you should have worked with people anyways, just because they were in this, we were all in this together, right? like what my buddy was saying, it'll take me a year to 18 months to re-rent this thing. So I'd rather get you in there paying a hundred bucks a month than it's sitting vacant, you know, you know what I mean? So that should have been the mentality. I could see where some of these big companies are like, yeah, that's your problem, not my problem. Yeah, um, look, I've had, um, I've, had, I've had people approach me and said, look, I got a space. Uh, how about you guys, um, you know, we work out a percentage sales and you take care yeah, yeah. of, you know, the cam charges, you know, until you until things get back to normal. Those are the kind of creative things that I'd love to hear more about, you know, um, because, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there. I mean, I, I will tell you, we opened the store during the pandemic. It was an old Poke Bowl place. Um, the family who owned that place, um, who owned the property, approached us literally before the Poke Bowl place went out of business and said, look, you know, our, our tenants having problems. We love your brand. You're local in Miami. You have, and, and when we looked at the rest of the tenants in there, they had a great tenant mix. And I, I don't know if enough people pay attention to that, but you know, you want businesses that are complementary to your existing business. Yeah. And so we had a great coffee shop next to us, a great book shop next to us. And these are all brands that are very unique to Miami. So we jumped at that opportunity and, and obviously, uh, you know, doing a conversion, you know, where the kitchen's already there, the, the bathrooms are already there, the counter's already there. I mean, the cost, the cost savings on that is really, really attractive um, for us. Um, so those are the things that I, I uh, we, as I talk to some of the potential franchisees we're working with, we're looking for more of those opportunities um, in our in our respective markets, right? What are those conversion opportunities that we can get into, uh, cut down on the cost and potentially get in in a fraction of the time? Yeah. So subways, I, I don't know how many subway closed. They're not disclosing those numbers right now, but I've always thought to myself because subway's so overpopulated, you know, and right. in an area, there are four within probably five mile radius. There's probably one left. So I was always thinking to myself, how can you go into that subway space and turn that into whatever you want it to be? Because that will be the number one real estate opportunity uh, and strip centers the next six months to a year, we'll be just buying up subways, getting in those. Um, cool. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Sorry, totally agree. I think too many people just in general closing on that comment. I think too many people go out and start looking for vacancy signs. Um, if you want to be creative, you need to look at that business that's struggling 
and you may want to approach the owner. Uh, you know, there may be uh, an opportunity there to take over a lease that uh, that's attractive and a space that has, uh, you know, a lot of the infrastructure in place. And so, yeah, those subway conversions, um, you know, there was a lot of other, you know, brands, uh, you know, because of obviously all the closures that were taking place before before COVID um, that a lot of brands could look at as conversion opportunities. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. It's better to get the guy who's still in his face and negotiate with that guy than it is to negotiate with the the guy who represents center yeah. or the commercial estate guy. Because the commercial real estate guy is going to go at 7,000, whether whatever it is. And the guy who owns that subway, who's like, there's a period, there was a Quiznos up on Hamden in Colorado that at the time, this would have been 2009, because I just left Quiznos, where the, the person literally would have given you Quiznos if you just took over the rent. So you could literally go into that space and rent was two or three grand, whatever that might have been. You could have taken that entire business off their hands and then decided what you wanted to do with it. You know, they could have defaulted, they could have closed the Quiznos down. You could have assumed their lease and, you know, just taken the thing as is. Whereas once again, if they close, then that real estate agent is going to give you the market rate. So yeah, that's probably a, the best tip we've given today for anybody who's listening to this, who's looking to grow, which is go to the strip center where you want to be and look at the guy who doesn't have any customers in there and go in and say, hey, do you want to uh, sign this lease to me? You would be surprised at how many people will just be like, I'm out. Yes. Don't right. Right. Walk yeah. out the door. Yep. <laughs> you know, here, right. here are the keys. Lock up. I'll grab the register. <laughs> I'll come back tomorrow and get my coat. It's yours now. <laughs> Sign this piece of paper. We're good. You won't be able um, to leave. You won't be able to leave fast enough without that guy making you sign. <laughs> oh, I know. Exactly. He'll lock the door. You know, you can't go. You're here now. Uh, uh, so real quick, give me a story, man. We're wrapping up with the fifth question. Give me a war story, something hilarious or horrible that you threw that's funny that we'll just commiserate with. I'll give you I'll give you a story I've told over the years. I look, I, there's a lot of stories. I'll I'll, I'll um there's stories that we could share over drinks and then there's stories stories for podcasts. I'll I'll give you a story for podcasts. Um but but this story is definitely something that resonated with me as I was a young a uh, young employee at Burger King. Um, at the time, uh, you know, most franchisors have a right of first refusal. So, you know, if you're a franchisee, you can sell the business to whoever you want as long as that person's approved. But the franchisor always has a chance to kind of come in and buy that business. Um, there was a franchisee in Chicagoland that basically built his empire from one store and he built every single store from the ground up. And over the course of 20 plus years, he grew to have something in the range of 35 locations. Every single location was doing at least 20% to 30% above the average for Burger King. This guy's entire organization was as lean, as lean as you can imagine. I mean, you know, you know, kind of the span of control of area yeah. managers and this and that. This guy had literally two guys under him, and those guys were the area managers for all 35 stores. And 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 for anybody in the restaurant space, that is literally like crazy. Like that's just uh yeah. you know, but those guys worked up the ladder with him. They literally started in the kitchen washing plates and like you know, hand making burgers, and so they've been with him for 20 plus years. Time comes for this guy to sell the business, and and you know, Burger King is getting ready to execute like a, a right of first refusal. But what they wanted to do is this guy owned every single piece of property and they wanted, ah. they wanted to own the property too. They wanted to buy the property, but the problem is they don't have a right of first refusal on the property. They have a right of first refusal on the business. So this guy ended up actually selling the business separate at a huge multiple and you know at the time it must have been a seven or eight multiple which you know back then for restaurant ebitda numbers just really great um but not only that he stayed on as a landlord you know um as a landlord and then maybe like four or five years later then sold the real estate and so this guy just made out like like a bandit but you know it just uh to the frustration of almost every bk executive who was looking at that opportunity as a great opportunity to 
to add more cash flow. But this guy literally, and, and it's a great story to kind of build your business. This guy started with one store, you know, and really um, because he owned the property in this case, and not everyone's able to do that, but, you know, because he made those decisions, at the end of the day, the property was worth a lot more than the actual restaurants. Um, and he was able to kind of get out and cash out pretty quickly. So anyway, that's a, that's a little bit of a story there. Oh, I mean, you know, the restaurant industry is brutal. It truly is like one of the hardest. It, it's not, I always say it's not complicated, but it's like, it's just hard because it's just hard to be consistent and it's hard to deal with this little employee and all the things. Like but it is still, other than you invent some amazing app or you're beautiful enough to be an influencer, right? Man yeah. or woman. Like, it's really probably one of the, the, the best industries you can get to to go from nothing to nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, because you don't yeah, you yeah. don't have to have Harvard, you don't have to have a doctorate. You just have to know how to manage people. You know how to manage people and motivate them, and you can work your way up from nothing to an empire. You truly can. And and there's nothing more rewarding in my years yeah. of being in this business. There's nothing more rewarding than going into a restaurant. Um, talking to the franchisee and knowing that he owns many, many, many stores and seeing his kids or his nephews or some family member, you know, sweeping and using the mop and stuff like that. Like, you know, you really regard, you know, one of the biggest things is how do you pass this on to the next generation? How do you teach these skill set? And I think the biggest mistake you can do is is to throw your kids into the office right away. You need those kids yeah. in the back, making the burgers, cleaning the bathrooms, doing everything and dealing with customers forever, forever before yeah. you bring them into an office, you know? Yeah. You don't yeah. even give them, like, it, you won't even give them a store. You see, you go right. work at the best store I have and you just go do what that guy tells you to do for the next five years and then we'll talk. They, uh, Here's the thing that's amazing about our business, and it's not true of businesses in the world, but I guarantee you that if you, the C, if I had never met this guy, I don't know who he is, the CEO of McDonald's, right? If the CEO of McDonald's is in a McDonald's restaurant, he's bussing tables. I, I'm willing to yes. put a thousand dollars on it. He yeah. sees a piece of trash on the floor. That guy is going to bend over and pick up that piece of trash. He'll wipe down the table. He'll take trash out. This is a working man's business. One of our good friends, who's one of the original podcast guests on the podcast, he's retired. His name was Tom Moxie. And Tom was the original CEO of uh, Rock Bottom. Um, he took Rock Bottom from a couple of restaurants in Colorado to like, you know, I think the one time they had about 100 Rock Bottoms and a couple of hundred old Chicago's wow. and whatnot. Yeah. And then he retired from that business and, and moved on. And then he got hooked up with John Elway and a couple of uh, other investors in town. And he was running Elway's Steakhouse, you know, which was a real nice steakhouse. And there's a couple in Denver area, you know. And I mean, and this guy had been the CEO of one of the biggest chains that had been on Wall Street and helped it get acquired and all this stuff. That guy was busting tapes, man. He's the GM of a yeah. restaurant. He was doing table touch, doing everybody enjoying their stuff. He's cleaning plates. I mean, that's just, this is that industry. We're in need of people who work. There's nothing beneath us. Uh, when you're in the business, there's nothing beneath you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. look, I mean, we, we yeah. you know, when we were going through this COVID stuff, and I'm sure restaurateurs can, can appreciate this, you know, we had to keep track of our employees. And there were times where, you know, we had to send four or five employees home till they got tested, till they come out negative and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm getting a call at seven o'clock at night. I'm going to the restaurant myself, right? I'm going to the restaurant myself. I'm I'm trying to help make ice cream and 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 trying to you know wash the bowls and do this and stuff. And and literally, um, you have to be humble because I can tell you right away that at least for me, you know, it's basically taking orders from a 15 year old who can make the ice cream 10 times faster than me, you know, and and being okay with that, right? Hey, this is their shop. I'm here to help. You know, tell me what to do. Tell me how to help. Um, but yeah, if you if you don't have that in you, it it not only it just doesn't send the right message to the organization as well, especially in a labor focused organization, right? If you can't yeah. sympathize with people, if you can't feel what they're feeling, you know, the notion when we closed our in store dining, that was way before Miami closed. 
Miami was still open for in-store dining as no should be no surprise to people, but we closed it down. And it's because our employees came to us and said, Hey man, we're only 800 to a thousand square feet. This it gets a little tight in here. We're not feeling comfortable. We're like, you know what? Let's shut it down. The last thing I need is my employees to not only feel unsafe, but feel like we don't care about them. Right. And so those are the things that uh, I think resonate well. And, and luckily, as we grow in a franchise organization, the first employees we, we hire are literally the employees that were working in our company stores. Right. I mean, our, our franchise business manager, we have one right now. He basically worked at the first store when it first opened and he's been an operator in the stores for the family since it opened. And so now he's basically, you know, growing with us in the franchise organization. Well, that's great. Well, yeah. David, I just had a great time talking today. I, I, this was so fun. And uh, I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. And, uh, you know, uh, for guys, like I said, chill in. The uh, website will be in the show notes. If you're looking for a franchise opportunity, you should definitely check them out. Now, obviously, if you're in Miami, stop by at Chillin' and you'll get yourself some ice cream. Uh, yeah, just come by, Tommy. Give me, I'll get you, uh, get you some free ice cream next time you're down in in uh, Miami. Well, thank you very much. I will take you up on that. Uh, so, guys, thanks for checking out the Order Up podcast. As I said, we have a lot of episodes on the books that are coming up. So just keep listening. We really appreciate your uh, uh, listening and being a fan of the show. And David, uh, thanks so much. Take care. Thank you.